Hello and welcome. You're listening to People Powered Radio 2XXFM 98.3. The program is Subject ACT and I'm Sophie Singh, bringing you stories from our city and beyond. Tonight we mark 20 years since the tragic sinking of the Civex. The story is one of loss and trauma, so please, if it raises particular issues for you, reach out and talk to someone. You can call Lifeline at any time of the day or night on 131114. That's 13 11 14. On the 18th of October 2001, a small fishing boat left Bandar Lampung in Indonesia en route to Australia. On board were 421 people. Their thoughts were of finding safety and a home in Australia. Many desperately focused on reuniting with family already in this country. On the 19th of October, the day after, the small fishing boat sunk. Devastatingly, only 68 people would survive. The CIVEX, so named because it had no name, the acronym standing for Suspected Illegal Entry Vessel, the X in the absence of a designated tracking number, is part of Australia's history. The sinking of the CIVEX happened in the midst of an election campaign in which John Howard put the issue of so-called boat people at the centre of his campaign. Two months prior, the Tampa incident had set the scene for Howard's campaign. And earlier that month, on the 7th of October, the Howard government told the country that a boat bound for Australia carrying people coming to seek asylum had thrown their children into the sea as a ploy to secure rescue and therefore passage into Australia. These claims were proven to be false, a fabrication, and that no children were thrown overboard. John Howard went on to win the 2001 election. Tonight, we remember the 353 people who died on the CIVEX and the families they left behind. A gift from CIVEX was written by renowned Sudanese-Australian poet Afif Ishmael, and recited in English by Dr. Vivian Glantz. A gift from Civex. Always my dad told me, I'm the man of the house in his absence, even though I'm the youngest of our family after seven girls. Why was my dad always away for months? I didn't know. When I asked my mum, she said he was travelling on a business trip. Every night... Just as my dad taught me, I asked my God to grant him sustenance in abundance, to come safely back with many gifts for all of us. Every time when daddy came back with a face full of scratches and bleeding wounds, like someone who had lost a boxing match, his nails long and dirty and some were loose, no comb could get through his hair, I saw a kingdom of lice roaming over it and on his back were traces of whips. Why did he always forget the gifts my mum promised me? He carried me on his shoulders and he told me, next time I will bring you a little something with wheels to ride on your first day at school. That night, I didn't sleep until dawn, thinking what colour would my bike be? Silver, red, blue, gold, or a fancy mosaic? I'd let my mum and my sisters ride it, but I'd never, never, ever, ever let that monster, our neighbour's child, who whenever he saw me snarled like a rabid dog, tried to scratch my face or snatched a piece of candy from my hand and ran away. 
I wouldn't even let him look at my bike. One day, after midnight, I woke up to whispering voices around me. My mum told me not to say a word. She carried me over her shoulder and rocked me until I fell asleep again. I thought I was still dreaming when I saw an ocean wave for the first time approaching me and walking away as if she was afraid of my feet or did not want to play with me. We boarded a wooden boat. I saw many children with their parents. We became a playful gang, waving at the birds and at an old deserted lighthouse because there was no one there to say goodbye to us. The boat sauntered for days, nothing but waves, and the sun was very bright. At night, the sky seemed close. It was like the one I knew before, but this one was as vast as a blazing blue tent embroidered with pearls. For days, the boat looked like my origami toy in these raging waves. Suddenly, high winds blew that worn-out boat, turned it upside down like a leaf. The screams were like a howling forest in the middle of nowhere. I saw my dad praying to his God to save his family and not to die in vain like someone throwing stones into the depths of the ocean. I shouted out, oh God, oh God, if we don't drown, I'll give you my bike, the one my dad will buy me after we arrive in Australia. The dreams and hopes that Afif Ishmael's poem brings to life were lost with the deaths of 146 children, 142 women and 65 men. One survivor's recollection was that Wherever you look, you see the dead children like birds floating on the water. Muhammad Hashim Aboroma lost his wife and his three children, along with ten other family members, when the Civex sunk. On his website, civex.com, he writes of fleeing Iraq, unable to find safety in Syria. Muhammad eventually made his way to Australia by boat, seeking a safe country to bring and resettle his family. But the policies of John Howard's government had removed any safe pathways for his family to join him in Australia. Muhammad writes, My family and I felt trapped and blocked, and there seems to be no solution. They boarded the ship of death on their way to Australia. They left my life without a farewell. They went forever without return. We did not embrace. We could not say a final goodbye to each other. Muhammad's story is one among hundreds mourning the loss of spouses, children and family in the horrific sinking of the Civex. And despite the Civex being inextricably connected with Australia's history, unsurprisingly there is no official monument remembering those who boarded that small fishing boat on the 18th of October and the hundreds who perished the following day. Instead, a small group of people came together and established the Civex People's Memorial, situated in Western Park here in Canberra, on the shores of Lake Burley Griffin. Paul Meyer is one of the Canberra custodians of the memorial, and I spoke with him on October 19th, 20 years to the day of the Civex disaster. Welcome, Paul. Thanks for speaking with me on Subject ACT. 
Oh, thank you. It's great to be with you. Paul, it's 20 years today, 19th of October 2001, that the Civex boat sank and 353 people lost their lives. It's a horrific tragedy and yet one that so few Australians know about, despite it being so much part of our history. Today, 20 years on, 19th of October 2021, what thoughts are uppermost in your mind, Paul? Well, for the last few years since I've been working at the memorial, looking after it, 19th of October has been quite a special day in in my mind. And uh, I like to, if possible, go there and spend a little bit of time and just thinking about the the people who were lost and especially their families, because many of them had family members here in Australia or where they came from who were missing them. And uh, this is all that those people, the, the survivors and the family members have to remember those who were lost. So it's just very special in that kind of way. It's a wonderful experience. And Paul, the, the sinking of the civics occurred in uh, the context of an extraordinary election campaign where uh, the issue of people seeking asylum was very much at the centre of that campaign. And the civics sank just a week before John Howard uttered his infamous line, we will decide who comes to this country and the circumstances in which they come. And sadly, those sentiments have been revisited time and again. Paul, how do you feel about those attitudes from our political leaders uh, over the last 20 years? A great sadness that we've turned into a country that closes our borders uh, in such incredible ways. We've become so insular-minded too, I think. What strikes me is that it's in such contrast to the way we were back when I first came to Australia in late 1970s, we were welcoming of the Indo-Chinese refugees. We welcomed so many. And that was under the remarkable leadership of Malcolm Fraser. But why we can't do that now? What's gone into our, our psyche, I guess, our national psyche, that we, we, we can't do that now? In fact, every time I drive under the Malcolm Fraser Bridge, I sort of wish I had a hat to take off and tip it to Malcolm Fraser. My goodness, for all those who, you know, were protesting against Fraser <laughs> in the day, yep. have completely changed their view mm-hmm. in that regard. Yes. So, mm-hmm. And to his credit. Paul, of the 353 people that drowned when the civics sunk, 146 were children. 142 were women and 65 were men of a boat carrying 421 people. That's such a massive loss of life. What responsibility do you think Australia should take for what happened with the civics? Philip Ruddock uh, um, was the minister responsible at the time, and he, he claims that it was not in Australia's waters, but others have pointed out that, in fact, it was in our maritime protection zone or something like that, and that Australian naval ships certainly were operating in that area. And uh, many of the survivors claimed that uh, while they were trying to stay afloat at night, that uh, naval ships went by, spotted them, but did nothing to help them. And so they they were fortunate. The ones who did survive were picked up by um, Indonesian fishing boat, you know, the next day or two days later. I'm not an expert on what really went on. Just 24 hours after the, the civics sinking, Philip Ruddick told the media that the tragedy may have an upside in the sense that some people will see the dangers that are inherent uh, in it. And there's certainly claims of a, of a government cover-up and a significant lack of transparency as to what did happen, what was known. Those claims certainly persist 20 years on. 
Yeah. One thing I read someplace, I haven't followed this up, that it was probably the largest, at least peacetime loss of life in Australia's maritime area. I've heard it characterised in the same way. And and as Steve Biddulf pointed out in his recent Canberra Times article, if a Qantas jumbo jet had gone down with 350 people on board, we would have done everything we could to find it. But 353 refugees, no. If you've just joined us, you're with Subject ACT on Canberra's people-powered radio, 2XXFM 98.3. I'm Sophie Singh. Tonight we're remembering and honouring the 353 people who died when the small fishing boat they were on, the Civex, sank on the 19th of October 2001. The people on board were trying to reach Australia to seek safety and a new home. Let's rejoin my conversation with Paul Meyer, one of the Canberra custodians of the Civex Memorial, situated in Western Park. Paul, on the eve of the 20th anniversary of the Civex, you were able to spend some time online with some of the memorial founders. What were some of the memories that were being shared? Yes, it was just last night with uh, Steve Bidolf and Rod Horsfield and Beth Gibbings, the three founders, plus a couple of others of their people that were helping them organizing the memorial. Steve, he was able to organize these people. This is how many years ago? Nearly 18, 19 years ago. Somebody wrote to every secondary school in Australia to get ideas for a memorial. Then once they came up with the idea of having white poles with artwork on it from contributing groups willing to donate a pole, then how to get them all to Canberra. Um, And they talked about how somebody brought their pole on the top of their little car, you know, tied to the top of the car. And how somebody organized a truck to start in Cairns in far north Queensland, come all the way down the coast, picking up poles, you know, bringing them to Canberra. And then Steve talked about how uh, he worked with uh, Sue Ware, I think it was, an advisor from RMIT in Melbourne, who had done a lot of research and and written a lot about memorials. And um, she was able to get several hundred meters of marine rope the kind that used to tie up boats to wharves and things, that real thick rope, which they used to lay out the design in in Western Park. Now, they weren't able to set the poles in the ground uh, when they first came. I think that was in 2006. The poles could only be held in place. They had volunteers from Canberra to hold them in place. They weren't allowed to put them in the ground then because the details of working out the memorial hadn't quite been finalized with the ACT government. So they had to store them someplace. A farmer outside of Hall had a big shed that they could store them in. And then they had to take them all to some shed in Fishwick where they could attach the plaques to them. You know, and that was all a big project too. These little details were just sort of fascinating. They did get the permission to establish the memorial in the ground with the cooperation of the chief minister at the time, John Stanhope despite the opposition of the federal government of the time. That was such a moving time. One other detail was how far apart to space the poles. And they determined, well, it had to be at least wide enough so that you could get a mower between them, you know. (laughs) All those practical considerations. (laughs) But another moving part of it was the winning design. They had a competition and it was a a 15-year-old schoolboy, I think, from um, Brisbane, Mitchell Donaldson, who suggested incorporating the shape and size of the boat into the memorial. And that's what really, really strikes people. To stand inside the poles that form the shape of the boat and to think 450 people were in 
I've been there sometimes when a bus will pull up with visiting school children and the teacher has them march into the boat shape and talk to them about that. What a lesson. (laughs) It's a really powerful part of the memorial. It is a memorial to honour and remember those people whose lives were lost. Not just to memorialise those lives lost, but to also remind us to, I think, of our responsibilities to look after our neighbours. I really like the saying on one of the signs at the memorial, Our message in making the memorial is that Australia is not a country defined by fear and greed. Love is stronger than fear. Kindness is stronger than greed. I think that really sums it up beautifully. And I think it gives you um, pause to reflect or consider what sort of Mm. society we want. I have been tempted to change the sign to say is that Australia should not be a country rather than is not. But in a way, it's become a country of fear and greed. Paul, over the the years that you've been uh, spending time at the memorial, what have been some of the reactions that you've come across from people who either just stumble across the memorial or come out to intentionally have a look at it, walk amongst the poles? There's been some people that, that have told me that they visited almost weekly. They walk through the the poles and just touching a few of them and just remembering the person. And occasionally we've had somebody there who's said, you know, I had a relative on that boat or I was booked to be on that boat or something like that. And that is so, you just, yes, very, very moving. Yeah. A memory that I have is um, Steve Thomas, the filmmaker, did a, a film called Freedom Stories, which featured the lives of a number of refugees in Australia and how they were settling. They told their stories. And one of them was a young man, Mustafa was his name. He came as a young boy with his parents and siblings. Their boat sank and they were in the water for a while, but rescued and then eventually were settled here in Canberra. I see Mustafa quite a bit. He's my mechanic, auto mechanic. Steve Thomas took Mustafa to the memorial and I I still get teary-eyed when Mustafa says to the camera, I could have been one of these poles. It's such a wonderful addition to our community now. Yeah. A lot of the poles have names and Mm -hmm. um, seeing pole after pole of the same family, I think, is just so devastating. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the poles don't have names, so they're simply unknown girl, unknown boy, but they were known. I mean, they were known to family. They were known to friends. Yes. How do you feel that we've not been able to give them an identity? Yes, apparently the names are known by the Australian Federal Police. This is what um, I've been told by Steve Biddulph and others that say that, yes, they're, the f- names of everyone is known and there have been efforts over the years to get those names from the authorities here in Australia. Hopefully, someday we may get those names and we'll be able to put them on the polls, which would be really, really wonderful. Paul, are there any remembrance polls that really strike a a much more powerful chord with you? Oh, yes. Some of the polls have wonderful expressions of hope and, and concern that the people who created the polls have. The one that I really like was placed there by a school in um, South Australia. I think it was Our Lady Queen of Peace School that has a, a Middle Eastern proverb on it. It's described. The proverb reads, how do we know when it is dawn, when we have enough light to recognize in the face of the stranger that of our sister? To me, that really 
sums up a lot of the the meaning of the uh, the memorial. Absolutely, and it um, rejects that othering, which I yep. think is so much part of the narrative in mm. Australia around people coming to seek asylum. Paul, thank you so much for speaking with me. I really appreciate you giving me the time. Thank you very much, Sophie. That was Paul Meyer, one of a small group of Canberra custodians who care for the Civics People's Memorial. Located at Currajong Point in Western Park, the memorial sits alongside the lake, a series of white poles weaving along the foreshore, honouring the victims of the Civics. Paul mentioned the poles outlining the actual size of the boat. This measures just 20 metres long and 5 metres across. And if you take a moment to mark out that space and imagine over 400 people crammed, it is truly staggering. I've recently become involved with restoring the artwork on the poles. I'm a total novice to this, but someone who is not at all a novice in this restoration work is Wilma Davidson. And I spoke with her recently at the Civics Memorial. Wilma, can we start with what you do here at the Civics Memorial? I come to the Civics Memorial to try and restore some of the artwork on the Civics Memorial. The memorial is made up of 280, I think it is, poles, and they have artworks from different schools, community groups, church groups, and they're getting a little bit weathered. So we have been working on them to, to brighten them up a bit and to look after them. So I come along to work on, on the poles. What are some of the challenges that you encounter in restoring the artwork, given that it's now been in existence, what, 16 years? I suppose the biggest challenge for me is, is my skill. I'm not a great artist. I'm not a conservator. And... It's just a case of really looking and seeing if I can honour what the initial artist did, if I can keep that up. But the biggest challenge is, of course, the weather. Some poles are fine, but some poles are very weathered, so I've got to to put uh, some sort of undercoat, if you like, to cover the wood. And that definitely is a challenge. But it's this idea of, of trying to do what was done before and sometimes it works well and sometimes not as well as as it could. And we're standing here at the memorial amongst the poles. Can you describe what you see? As I look ahead of me I see that there's a collection of poles that are tall and a collection of poles that are short and we're at near the end of the memorials. None of those people have names. We don't know who these people were that drowned. The tall poles will be an unknown father or an unknown mother. The short poles will be an unknown child. In between um, two large poles, there's, there's two short poles. And then as we go along, it's short, tall, short, tall. The poles are painted very individually. They tell us what the painters, I suppose, what what this tragedy meant to them. And the pole that's jumping out to me at the moment is the one with the five birds. This story came from someone who lost a couple of brothers on the boat. And, And this is a message to them. And he talked to some people about this and they painted the poles with the birds and the boat and the sea and it's in black and white. And that's jumping out at me because... 
I just heard this story. There's always a new story comes. There's an atmosphere here at the memorial. It's not just an art installation. There's something very, I think, sacred about this memorial and that comes across very much for me. What for you is the atmosphere of the memorial? I think sacred is a good word. It, it is a very special place. It's a place where we honour people who otherwise may not be honoured because there's so few people who were saved from the boat. And yes, some of these people had relatives here, but not many. It needs to be here so that people have some place to go to acknowledge this, whether they knew the people or whether they didn't. Immaterial. I'm aware of what it means to other people. There's a woman who comes um, at dusk. I haven't seen her for a while, but she comes and prays. And she starts at the beginning and she walks along and she prays. And that's what is important for her to do. At the other end of the memorial, there's some poles that have um, Arabic writing. And we were fortunate enough to find a volunteer who could write the Arabic writing. And so they've, they've been restored. But the other week, a young man came along whose uncle had been on the boat. And he could read Arabic. And I asked him to read the words. And they were words that were about honor and caring and, and worship. And so I suppose it doesn't matter how one honors whatever one's spirit is. It transcends any particular denomination or, or particular branch of faith. Wilma, thank you so much for talking with me. I really appreciate it. Thank you for the opportunity. Good job. 
That was Small Wooden Boat by Liam Gurner, who wrote the song 20 years ago in response to the Civics tragedy. Before that, Wilma Davidson spoke about her work at the Civics and the spirituality of the memorial. We've come to the end of Subject ACT. I'm Sophie Singh. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 